in the heart of the outback, safeguarding a sacred land. Anthony Ham. Close to the geographical heart of Australia, Alice Springs feels like a true desert town. Red earth laps its edges. The ochre walls of the West McDonnell Ranges crowd its southern fringe. Pink-chested galas wheel and screech overhead, and, lining the streets, gum trees give off the faintest smell of eucalyptus. Even by Aussie standards, Alice Springs is casual, people dress down, and many drive well-equipped four-wheel drive trucks that are as much a part of the uniform as t-shirts, shorts, and Akubra hats. It is a frontier town, one that likes a drink, a tall tale from the outback and a weekend spent camping, which is what I plan to do after a few days in town. On a visit last May, I stayed at the Doubletree by Hilton and ate in the hotel's elegant Hanuman restaurant with some of the best Indian dishes outside Australia's major cities. By day, I visited Alice Springs Desert Park with its extraordinary desert wildlife and the city's aboriginal art galleries. Exploring the Araluan Art Center and Papunitula Gallery was like a crash course in the exquisite traditional dot paintings of Australia's western and central deserts. It was a reminder that Alice Springs, or Mparntwi to its traditional owners, the Arurnt people, is largely an Aboriginal town. Nearly one-fifth of the population is indigenous. Alice Nampajinpa Henwood, a Warpuri elder who is steeped in the traditional ways of her people, once told me that she seldom went to Alice Springs. I go only when I have to. Out in the desert is better. I knew that Ms. Nampajinpa Henwood, whom I had gotten to know over the years, was now working as an indigenous ranger at New Haven Wildlife Sanctuary in the Great Sandy Desert, some 200 miles northwest of Alice Springs. Australia's first indigenous ranger program began back in 2007. Now, close to 200 such programs operate on protected areas overseen by local indigenous communities or, in the case of New Haven, in partnership with non-profit conservation groups. Such reserves make up nearly half of Australia's protected areas. I had heard about New Haven, of a desert reborn, of a partnership between Warpuri Rangers and the conservation non-profit Australian Wildlife Conservancy to bring threatened wildlife back to the desert. Some of the species that were being returned, many of them from a captive breeding program at Alice Springs Desert Park, were central to the traditional creation stories told by elders such as Ms. Nampajinpa Henwood into the desert. Convinced that Ms. Nampajinpa Henwood was right, that the desert was indeed better than town, I drove north from Alice Springs on a chilly morning. The Tulane Stewart Highway wandered between low, bare hills. I shared it with the great road trains of Australia's remote byways. Carrying everything from cotton to cattle, these three trailered giant trucks were nearly 200 feet long. After about 12 miles, I took the Tanami track that branched to the northwest. One of the world's longest shortcuts, the Tanami connects Australia's red centre with the tropics of its top end, passing just one town, Uendamu, population 759, in 600 miles of desert travel. Soon the road narrowed to a single lane. Low tea tree scrub, fire scarred in places, lined the roadside as red sand and clusters of tumbleweed like spine effects blew out of the desert. Wedge tailed eagles, with their 7.5 foot wingspans, circled overhead. A flock of wild budgerigars swarmed the sky in a flash of green. There were no other vehicles. 
Nearly 90 miles from Alice Springs, taking the turnoff for New Haven Wildlife Sanctuary felt like casting off into the ocean from a deserted shore. Wide and well-graded, the Red Sand New Haven track was gun-barrel straight. Away to the south, the Stewart Bluff Range resembled waves frozen in the act of breaking. I saw one other vehicle, a man driving very slowly. We each kept our hands on the steering wheel and raised a single index finger, the outback salute. After passing beneath an honor guard of desert oaks, the road narrowed, snaked through a rocky canyon, then emerged into another world. It was a first glimpse, but I was reminded why my destination, New Haven Wildlife Sanctuary, was special. Here was the great sandy desert as it once was, rich in wildlife, cared for by indigenous custodians, and enthrall of a deep, desert silence. I knew a few other places where I could wake in a Hilton early one morning and find myself in a remote corner of the desert by lunchtime. The Center of the Universe Much like the American West, the Australian outback looms large in the popular imagination. European explorers tried to cross it. Settlers tried to tame it. But there were people here long before the settlers came, and to them it was the center of the universe, not the outer reaches of some far-distant civilization. First Nations people, who have lived here for tens of thousands of years, have a deeply spiritual connection to the land. The land, our country, is central to everything that we are as a people, Wanta Jampa Jinpa Pa Lernu, a Warpuri elder, told me. The law, our language, our ceremonies, even our kinship system, everything comes from the land. This is Luritja and Warpuri country. It is also the Great Sandy Desert, Australia's second largest desert, comparable in size to Nevada. Passing through the narrow defile in the Siddeley Range was like entering some secret portal. West of the mountains, the earth was a deeper shade of red. In the shadow of desert massifs lay salt lakes fringed with spiny clumps of spine effects and desert oaks. White-trunked ghost gums clung to the steep rock walls. I pulled over and got out. The wind roared through the desert oaks like a road train. The sand was alive, marked with runic inscriptions from the animals that call the desert home. I came upon a blue-toned skink sunning itself on the sand, then a thorny devil. It struck me that this was how the land must once have appeared to those who lived here before the Europeans arrived. Until well into the 20th century, Warpuri and Luritja people shared this land with an astonishing array of wildlife. As the settlers moved in, New Haven became a cattle station. In 2000, Birds Australia, now BirdLife Australia, purchased the property. Six years later, the Australian Wildlife Conservancy bought and took over New Haven, which extends across 1,000 square miles. For years later, the traditional ownership of the property by the Warpuri and Luritja was officially recognized. Ever since, the traditional custodians and AWC have worked together to restore New Haven to its pre-settler past. Already numerous small marsupial species, the burrowing beton, which can turn over nearly 30 pounds of soil in a single night, the greater bilby, Australia's Easter bunny, and the rufous hair wallaby, known as the mala, have been returned to the sanctuary. Until their reintroduction, these animals hadn't been seen here in more than half a century. Every trail tells a story. It was getting late when I pulled into New Haven's shaded campground, close to the sanctuary's headquarters and with its own showers and toilets. 
In the thin shade of acacias, far enough away from my neighbor's campfire to maintain a sense of desert solitude, yet close enough to ward off the great emptiness when in need of company, I raised my vehicle's rooftop tent. At sunset, I climbed a nearby hill and took in a view that stretched deep into the heart of Australia. The next morning, and over the mornings that followed, I woke to a glow on the eastern horizon. Near the campground's entrance, I stopped by an unstaffed post to pick up information sheets and self-drive itinerary instructions. Then, accompanied by the sound of songbirds, I set out. Each day had its own discoveries, and every trail told a story. One New Haven path took me almost as far west as I could go in the reserve. There I wandered amid the faint traces of Mount Gurner Homestead, a former cattle station where the owners struggled through droughts until they bowed to the inevitable and fled. Ruins such as these haunt the Australian outback, forlorn monuments to the ill-fated dreams of its settlers. Another route took in the salt lakes and spinifex plains that cut through the sanctuary's interior. Trailside there were the still-intact burrows of bettongs. Popularly known as rat kangaroos, bettongs were once so prolific that 19th-century explorers were able to survive almost entirely on them. By the second half of the 20th century, the burrowing bettong was largely extinct. In 2022, AWC reintroduced them into New Haven, and there are signs that they may return to the same burrows that their ancestors dug. One story above all others shadowed me wherever I went in New Haven, that of the Mala, which is rather like a kangaroo in miniature. In First Nations stories from Jakarta or, Dreamtime, the period when First Nations peoples believed that the world was created, the Mala emerged from the earth here, on the Ritja and Wopari country. The sacred sites remain, known only to indigenous keepers of the story. One of these is Stephen Connor, a Warbury elder whose family is among those responsible for keeping alive the Mala songline, which is at once a story and the physical route traveled by the animals in First Nations creation stories. The Mala's story begins at New Haven, he told me. The songline follows where the Mala went after it came out of the earth. One branch of the songline goes south, to Uluru. Another goes north, along the Tanami. That's my country. My parents and grandparents used to see Mala there all the time, but I've never seen a Mala. Only in Alice Springs Desert Park, in the zoo. But we still look after the song line. We go to the sacred sites to carry out our ceremonies with our songs and our stories. Back at headquarters, I tracked down Ms. Nampajinpa Henwood. There were lots of Mala out in the bush, she told me as we sat in the shade and spoke about the animals that she remembered from her childhood. There were so many that we used to hunt them. She explained that the Mala disappeared from New Haven, probably sometime around the 1970s, driven to extinction by dry season fires, feral cats, and the clearing of land for livestock. Only a tiny, fast-shrinking population hung on in the Tanami Desert. In the 1980s, scientists captured what was believed to be the last wild Mala, which then formed the basis for a captive breeding program. The hope was that the mala, which was officially declared extinct in the wild in 1991, could one day be reintroduced into the wild. Years later, the AWC and others realized that Warbury people like Ms. Nampajinpa Henwood, who grew up in the desert and knew how to read the country, were essential to the land's renewal, they began to draw on their deep wells of knowledge. 
In 2020, Ms. Nampajin Pahenwood was among those who released captive-bred mala into New Haven. For the first time in more than half a century, the animals were back where their journey across the earth had begun. For a long time, we didn't see any mala, she told me. They're only here at New Haven. It was a homecoming of sorts. The reintroduction of the mala by the Warbury was a circling back to the Dreamtime, to pre-European Australia. On my final afternoon, I set off in search of Yukinjani, reputed to be one of the great sandy desert's most beautiful lakes and which European mapmakers called Lake Bennett. Where the vehicle track ended, I walked to a high sand dune and went no farther, the lake bed is considered sacred to the Whirlbury. There I sat overlooking the lake, surrounded by golden grasslands and red sand under a blue desert sky. Rising above the far horizon were the West McDonnell Ranges with Mount Liebig, a shapely quartzite mountain, silhouetted purple against the darkening sky. I sat, spellbound in the gathering moonlight, here in a land alive again with the songs of the past. Follow New York Times Travel on Instagram and sign up for our weekly travel dispatch newsletter to get expert tips on traveling smarter and inspiration for your next vacation. Dreaming up a future getaway or just armchair traveling? Check out our 52 places to go in 2023 https://www.newyorktimes.com/interactive/2023/travel/52-places/travel-2023.html.